Well, take your Bibles again and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We are turning the chapter into chapter 6 this morning. And as we turn, we're also turning to a new theme. Uh, Each of these sections of the Gospel of John, I've had a specific and unique theme. So, for instance, we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and we considered the fact that Jesus is here. Jesus has arrived. He's shown up. He's on the scene. Then we saw in chapter 3 that Jesus is life. Then we transitioned to Jesus is God. And we saw that Jesus, by his own personal admission and testimony, proclaimed himself to be God in human flesh. Well, this morning, we're going to begin this new theme, Jesus is Lord. And here's why I've chosen this theme. Because it's here in chapter 6, the first time we find one of Jesus' disciples Address him as Lord. That's kurios in the Greek. It means master, ruler, boss. Jesus is Lord. In fact, it's towards the end of this chapter. Jesus has been making some very difficult statements about what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And because of that, people begin to peel away. The crowds begin to disseminate from following him. And notice the question Jesus asked his disciples in verses 67 and 68 of John 6. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as we go through these next few chapters here in the Gospel of John, we will come to understand hopefully better what it means that Jesus is Lord. He's ruler. He's the boss. You know, it's one thing to recognize the miraculous and supernatural nature of Jesus and affirm him as being, yes, he's God. He's God in human flesh. It's altogether another thing for Jesus to be your Lord, for Jesus to be your ruler. This morning, as we start at the beginning of chapter 6, I'm going to be preaching a message I've entitled, More Than Enough, More Than Enough. This passage we're going to read in just a moment is a record of something that's going to be very familiar to you. It's the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible, that's what the heading says. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And most of you who've grown up in church or been around church, you've known this story for a very long time. In fact, maybe coming into your mind's eye is an image, perhaps a picture from a storybook Bible that you had as a child of the feeding of the 5,000, or maybe a cartoon, or maybe you can remember way back in Sunday school and your teacher used to use felt boards, right? And you can picture in your mind's eye this miracle, or maybe even if you're really old, cave drawings of Jesus and feeding the 5,000, right? Whatever comes to your mind's eye, this is that story. A little bit of Bible trivia. There's only one miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that's recorded in all four Gospels, and it's this miracle right here, the feeding of the 5,000. You could call this miracle where Jesus takes a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and he puts before 5,000 men plus women plus children this, what I could call an all-you-can-eat buffet, They ate their fill, and there was lots of food left over. Now, I know not everybody enjoys an all-you-can-eat buffet. Some people are a little picky. You might guess I love all-you-can-eat buffets. In fact, I happen to think the Chinese buffet we have here in Lookout Valley is really good. You may disagree. 
I frequent it, and one time I went in there and I noticed they had a new dish on the buffet, and I'd not seen this before. It was a large black pot with a lid on it. So I was curious. I went over to the buffet, and as I walked over to the pot, it opened up. The lid came up, and I looked inside, and there were two eyeballs looking at me. It was just as quickly as it opened up, it closed back down again. I looked around to see if anybody else saw it. It opened up again. I looked inside. Sure enough, two eyeballs looking up at me, and then it closed again. And I thought, what is this dish? And so I looked up at the little label there. It said, Peking duck. (laughs) I tried that out on my wife, and she groaned as well. Well, again, this feeding of the 5,000 is like the first all-you-can-eat buffet. 5,000, just the men plus women and children. And after dinner was served, they had more than enough. Let's see what the Bible says. This is the word of the Lord. John 6, we'll read the first 15 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, this story is easy enough for us to understand on a historical level. After this, the text begins. After some indefinite period of time, we know in chapter 1, excuse me, in the previous chapter 5, that Jesus was in Jerusalem. He heals a paralytic who had been at the pool of Siloam for some 30-something years. He heals him. It happens to be healing on the Sabbath day. That gets him in hot water with the religious leaders. And he gives a discourse before the gathered Sanhedrin, the religious uppity-ups of Jerusalem. After this, John says, he goes to the other side of the sea of Galilee. Now, we know from the other parallel gospel accounts that Jesus traveled across the water by boat, but the crowd, seeing where he was going, they ran around the lake, around the sea by foot, and met him on the other side. Now, we've already seen in John's gospel that the crowds are amazed at Jesus' works of healing, his miracles. But we've also seen 
that their amazement is not necessarily a true indicator of genuine faith. Their interest was really in the spectacular, the miracles, the works, the wonders, the healing, not so much for the message and not even the messenger. And we see this explicitly in our focal passage. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. I mean, think about it like this. Imagine if we were to hear that at Erlanger Hospital and Memorial Hospital and Park Ridge Hospital, there was somebody going floor to floor, room to room, and healing all the sick. This past week, one of our family friends was rushed to the hospital by ambulance because he suffered a massive heart attack. And when the paramedics picked him up, they told the family, we can't take him to Erlanger or Memorial because they're both full. We have to take you to Park Ridge. Imagine hearing all three hospitals are empty. The Heart Institute closed down. The ICU shut down. Jesus is going room by room, floor by floor, village to village, healing all the sick. Do you think people are going to be curious? You think people are going to be following him to find out about this wonder Worker, And so that's exactly what happens. Verse 4 of our focal passage tells us that it was the Passover. It was the time of Passover. In In John's gospel, there are three distinct Passovers mentioned, the annual festival of the Hebrews. That's how we know Jesus's ministry, by the way, was around three years long because John records three distinct Passovers over the course of his public ministry. It was the Passover. What Passover was, was it was at the highest annual feast among the Jewish people. So there would have naturally been Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate excuse me, Passover. So the crowds, they're far from home. They're hungry. And Jesus says, hey, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? In the other Gospels, we know that Jesus sat them down in the grass in an orderly fashion. He told his disciples, you divide them up by fifties and by hundreds. And with the five loaves and two fish, he fed the whole crowd, and there were, again, 12 baskets left over. You notice verse 11 in your text. It says that Jesus took the little boy's lunch, the five loaves and two fish, and he gave thanks the Greek word there is the Greek word eucharistesas. That doesn't mean anything to you, except you might see an English word in that, eucharistesas. It's the English word eucharist. Eucharist. And that's a word that sometimes people use to refer to what? Communion, the Lord's Supper. What eucharist literally means is give thanks. Give thanks. In the parallel accounts, it says that Jesus took the food and he blessed God. What what is that? Well, he would have probably spoken a common Jewish blessing that would have been said before a meal. Something to this effect. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. This would have been the type of prayer, the type of blessing that Jesus would have spoken. Some type of blessing of God, giving thanks, a Eucharistesas. You know, shortly after I became a Christian, I became aware of the, the necessity or the importance of saying a blessing before my own private meals, not just with my family. 
And so I remember praying a blessing on one occasion. And uh, after I prayed a blessing over the food, I kind of spoke words similar to what I'd heard people say, God bless this food to my body. And then I said, and by the way, God bless all the food I ever eat the rest of my life. So I wanted to cover it all, right? And sometimes we can think, you may, you may hear somebody say, hey, would you bless our food? Actually, when we pray, we're not asking God to bless our food. That's not what Jesus did. If you happen to get a Big Mac combo and you say, God, bless this food, it doesn't supernaturally turn into grilled fish and steamed broccoli, right? When we pray a prayer of blessing before a meal, it's not asking God to transform the food somehow. We're giving thanks. We're blessing God. We say, God, I recognize it's from your hand that I've received this gracious provision, and I'm grateful And by the end of the miracle, John says in verse 15 that the crowd was ready to take him by force and make him king. That's the story. And like I said, it's very familiar to us. We're used to it, and we can see it. And I've told you before that John organizes the first section of his gospel around these seven signs, seven miracles. This is the fourth sign, and each one is recorded specifically to communicate something unique about Jesus. Now, before we dig into this miracle, let me tell you what John is not communicating here. John is not communicating the importance of sharing your food with other people. There are those who come to the Bible, and when they see something miraculous like this, they come to it and they try to explain it away. So here's how some of those interpreters would explain this away. The true miracle is that this little boy shared what he had, And everybody else saw his generosity, and they all beginning there to share their lunch with other people. And this performed a miracle of sharing, and they had 12 basketfuls left over. So why don't you share with other people? That may be all well and good, but that's not what's being communicated here. You see, that doesn't compel us to come and bow before Jesus as Lord. Jesus performed a bona fide miracle. I want you to see three truths from John's presentation of Jesus here. And they show us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. First of all, Jesus is a better rescuer. Jesus is a better rescuer. Now, even though most of us have been in church a long time and we are pretty familiar with our Bibles, we are not anywhere near as familiar as what Jesus' audience would have been familiar with. The Jewish people of the first century had much of the Old Testament, which was their Bible, memorized, committed to memory. And here's what's amazing. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have iPhones with multiple versions at their fingertips. They didn't even have books or scrolls. Most of the people in this crowd were actually illiterate. So how could they know these stories if they couldn't even read? Because they told them in their families to generations over and over and over again. That you could just say two words and they would immediately know what story you're talking about. Ark, flood, story of Noah's Ark. Um, Sling, giant, story of David and Goliath. Lion, den, story of Daniel and the lion's den. Just little words like that would have been clues and they would have immediately known line by line by line because they were told in the same way as they were recorded in the scripture. And so they would have known this. And so John is writing his account here of this miracle. And throughout this miracle, there are little hints 
and intimations to some Old Testament figures and events that you may have missed when we read through it. But when the readers of the first century would have read it, they would have picked up on the clues immediately. Jesus is a better rescuer, and I want you to see how he's better than two particular figures or connections of rescuers in the Old Testament. First of all, we see there's a connection to the ministry of Moses. There's a connection here in this story to the ministry of Moses, and really through the rest of this chapter, there will be connections to Moses. I want you to consider some parallels here in this event to Moses' ministry. Uh, The other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus went into a desolate place. And think of Moses leading the children of Israel into the wilderness, into the desert, into a desolate place in Exodus chapter 15. The Bible says here that Jesus went up onto a hill, a mountain. Big things happen in the Old Testament on mountains. Uh, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. Jesus goes up onto the mountain to give and to teach the law of God. Jesus divides the crowd into smaller, more manageable units. Moses did the same thing, dividing the children of Israel into tribes, into clans. And even his father-in-law, Jethro, said, you need to divide it up even more. And we see in Moses, explicitly, Jesus makes some connections to Moses as the chapter continues. He talks about in the following verses how Moses gave you manna, but I'm giving you the bread of heaven. The bread of heaven. And so John is wanting us to see Jesus is a better rescuer. He's better than the ministry of Moses. Jesus is also a better rescuer than the provision of the prophets provision of the prophets. Two prophets in Israel's history are often highlighted because of the miraculous works that they performed under the power of God, Elijah and Elisha. And God worked through them in profound ways. And even similarly to the way Jesus is working here through the miraculous multiplication of meager means. You may remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. There is drought in the land, a drought he predicted. And because of the drought, there's a scarcity of food and there is a famine. He happens to go into a widow's home and he says, hey, I'd like to have something to eat. She says, all I have is a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, just enough to make a cake. My son and I are going to eat it and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, fix me a cake first and then you all will have something to eat. And she obeyed the word of Elijah. And sure enough, God began to multiply her meager means, and the text says she ate for many days. Elijah's successor, Elisha, we find a similar type of an event in his life. In 2 Kings, Elisha again goes into a widow's home, and she is destitute. She is poor. All she has is just a little bit of cooking oil in a bottle, and she tells him, I have to sell this, or or the creditors are coming to take my children as slaves to pay my debts. And what does Elisha tell the widow to do? Send your kids out to go find as many jars and vessels and bottles and containers from your neighbors as they can possibly find. And they start gathering all these empty containers and bring them into the house. And she begins to pour from her little bottle of oil and fills up all these containers to the brim over and over again until they got to the last container and then the oil ran out. An incredible, miraculous multiplication of this food product. But one that I think is particularly being connected here is in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
Uh, you may not even remember this story, but the Jewish hearers of John's day would have definitely made the connection. If you don't remember the particular story, um, there's really three words they would have picked up on. Barley, boy, and baskets of leftovers. Don't you love alliteration? <laughs> Barley, a boy, and leftovers, a baskets of leftovers. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4. This, again, is in the ministry of Elisha. The Bible says, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a 100 men? So he repeated, give them to the men so that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So we see the barley loaves here, right? Same as in the book of John, chapter 6, barley loaves. Further, something you probably wouldn't have picked up on, but they would have picked up on, <clears throat> is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Uh, there in verse 43, the word that's translated servant is the Greek word paideron, which is little boy. The exact same word in John chapter 6 is the little boy. And then further, you have the leftovers in the story with Elisha and with Jesus. And even beyond that, there's the incredulous question. The paideron, the little boy, says, how is this for so many? And then Andrew says, how can I set this before so many? But Jesus is the better rescuer. Jesus is the better provider. What Jesus does absolutely dwarfs what God does through Elisha. Elisha began with 20 loaves. Jesus begins with five. Elisha just had to feed 100 men. Jesus fed 5,000 men and women and children. We extrapolate that out. Over 20,000 people. Miraculous. It's like Jesus is saying, Hey, guys, you know that story you all grew up with of Elisha and the miraculous multiplication of barley loaves? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. What's the point? The point is this. Listen, Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the prophet. In fact, that's exactly the conclusion that this crowd landed on. In verse 14, look at it again. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Who is this prophet they were looking for? Who is this prophet they were waiting for? Was actually a prophet that was predicted by Moses. Moses predicted there is a prophet coming like him who's going to supplant him, who's going to be much far more better than him. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's what Moses said. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. This is the one they were looking for, the promised prophet. And Jesus is reminding them here of their heroes, of their rescuers, of their prophets. And he's saying, I'm a better rescuer than them. And not only is Jesus a better rescuer, number two, Jesus is a better ruler. Jesus is a better ruler. 
I told you earlier that this miracle occurred during the season of Passover. This is also an important interpretive principle for us as we consider this miracle. What was the Passover? The Passover was a remembrance, a celebration of God's divine deliverance of the people of Israel from their Egyptian captivity and bondage by the very power of God. The Passover was the last plague of the 10 plagues, the final plague that finally convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. And this celebration of Passover for the Hebrew people would have been not only a religious celebration, it would have been a national patriotic celebration. It would be something like if we combined Christmas, Easter, and Fourth of July all into one big festival and holiday. That's what Passover was for them. It was a time of nationalistic fervor. It was a time of great Israeli patriotism. But also, Passover would have been a time of hope and expectation. They would think and they would believe is if God would deliver us from the oppression of the Romans we have now, boy, Passover would be a perfect time to do it, Lord. Passover would be a great time to rescue us just like you re- re- uh, rescued our forefathers from Egypt. You can rescue us now through a deliverer, through a prophet that you would send. There's a crowd gathered here. It's interesting that the gospel writers record 5,000 men. Why didn't they say women and children too? There were certainly women and children there as well. Many women followed Jesus. Why 5,000 men? I think it's likely that they mention the men because the men represent a fighting force. The men represent an army. The men represent guerrilla warfare. He's the prophet. Let's make him our king by force. We're ready to go to Jerusalem and topple the government. And you're our king. In the historical background of Israel, in in the first century, there are basically four main groups of Hebrews that existed. We've heard of a couple of them probably, Pharisees and Sadducees. The other two groups that existed were known as the Essenes, and these were a more uh, spiritual, kind of mystical group of Jews. And then the fourth group was known as Zealots. These were those that had incredible nationalistic pride. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot. And during Passover, their sensitivity was heightened. They were on high alert. They were ready. They were geared. And there's no doubt that among these 5,000 men, there were certainly some zealots, people who were ready to topple and to form a revolution. They were ready for revolution, and they thought they found their revolutionary. They were ready by force to take Jesus to be king. It seems the crowd is thinking, finally, finally, the promised deliverer is come. The promised prophet. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. We want him to be our rescuer, to be our deliverer because of his miracles, because of his power, because of his divine nature. Now's the time to take back Jerusalem again. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we want Jesus to do that for us, don't we? Wouldn't we love it for Jesus to just, come on, Jesus, you know you can do it. Would you just wipe out our enemies? (laughs) Would you just take those people out that we don't really like? We want him to take over and make things in the world the way, well, we think they should be in the world. But is that the kind of Jesus or the kind of king Jesus came to be? Is that the kind of king? or the kind of kingdom 
Jesus came to establish? 5,000 men, a guerrilla force, ready to strike at the heart of the Romans in Jerusalem. The crowd gathered around Jesus, and they wanted to, by force, make him their king. How did he respond? Look again at the end of verse 15. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why did Jesus withdraw from these people? Jesus, they are enthusiastic about you. They are ready to follow you to the death. They're enthusiastic for you, Jesus. They were enthusiastic for their own concept of Jesus. They were enthusiastic for their own concept of a king. That doesn't happen today, right? People don't become enthusiastic for their own concept or belief of what Jesus is or who he should be. People today are excited about a Jesus who will take away all their sicknesses, remove all of their diseases, who will put cash in their bank account, bring them success and prosperity around every corner. Listen, the prosperity Jesus is not the real Jesus. There are, come to, there are some who are enthusiastic about a Jesus who they think is going to take care of all the social inequalities in our world. He's going to, by the force of the government, take resources from the rich and redistribute them to the poor. Friends, Jesus is not a socialist Jesus. There are some who come to Jesus and think, well, Jesus is just this, you know, this hip guy. He's a countercultural Jesus. He's cool. He hangs out with the hippies. He says, dude and bro a lot. Jesus is not your homeboy. It's not the real Jesus. And, oh, friends, people can become excited today about a nationalistic Jesus who comes to take out our political enemies Jesus is not your patriotic Jesus. And mark this, if you have enthusiasm for a Jesus that doesn't really exist, how will he respond to your enthusiasm? He will withdraw away from you. Jesus is not the kind of king that obliterates your enemies, in a bloodbath. Jesus is the kind of king that makes a bloodbath, to be sure, but it's a bath of his own blood that he has shed for his enemies, not from them. What kind of king is this that would die for those who hate him? Would die for you? The kind of king we need. Jesus is a better rescuer. Jesus is a better ruler. Finally, Jesus is a better redeemer. Look at verse 6 again. He's speaking to Philip, and he's asking him where they could get bread. John tells us he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Listen, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. He's fully aware of what he's about to do. He's not panicking. He's not out of control. He's not fretting, just the opposite. He's in total control. 20,000 people are heading towards him. They're hungry. They've been walking for hours. They're coming towards him, and he knows exactly what he's going to do. And so he turns to Philip and says, Philip, what do you think we ought to do? 
Have you ever remembered being in school some decades ago? I can remember this. And for no reason, unexpectedly, your teacher just calls on you. Troy, what did you get for number eight? Uh, I didn't get that far in my homework, sorry. <laughs> unexpectedly, Jesus calls on Philip. Hey, Philip, what, what do you think we ought to do here? Where are we to go to buy some bread for all these people? Why did he pick on Philip? Well, P Philip is from Bethsaida, which was near to where they were. So if anybody knows of a store that has enough food to feed 20,000 people, well, Philip, you ought to be the guy. This is your old stopping grounds. This is your hometown, boy. Where are we to go? Jesus knew what he would do. Philip responds, uh, Lord, even if we had 200 denarii, it would be enough to give these guys just a little morsel, just a little taste. A denarius was a day's wage. So 200 denarii was roughly two-thirds of an annual salary. If you figure an annual salary, so the math is easy, $60,000, let's say. Two-thirds of that is $40,000. Good job, math students. Judas looks in the money bag. Even if I put back all that I've pilfered, we ain't going to have $40,000. How are we to have this much money to buy this much bread for this many people? Then comes Andrew. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. He brings this little boy, this Pideron, with his lunch. Uh, Jesus, I got this kid here. I think he has a packet of peanut butter crackers and two packs of fruit snacks. But what is this for so many? It's the same thing. Five loaves. Don't think a loaf of French bread. Think an English muffin, a little barley muffin, two sardines, pickled fish. Mm, sounds good. I got a little boy with some pickled fish burgers. But what is this for so many people? Clearly, the miracle here is not the little boy making his meal available. The miracle is the power of Jesus. He's Lord over that meager meal. And then notice again verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. People ate all they wanted. Just like I say sometimes after Amy cooks, boy, I couldn't eat another bite, right? We're full. They loosen the belt up. They were filled up. And then Jesus says, collect all the leftovers. Jesus does not waste food. Now, this is miracle food. He could have created it out of nothing. But he says, you go and collect it all so that nothing is lost. If you're here today and you're saying, I don't eat leftovers, talk to Jesus about it. <laughs> That's my little aside as a very cheap person. Okay. Of course, they collected how many basketfuls? Twelve baskets. Why twelve baskets? Twelve disciples. Each of these disciples are bringing to Jesus this overflowing basket of food. Friends, this miracle was not for the crowd. It wasn't for the zealots who wanted to take over Jerusalem. This miracle was to communicate to those 12 disciples, I've got you. I have the power to carry you through whatever we're about to go through. You see, because at the end of this chapter, the crowds are leaving Jesus, and it's just him and the 12. It's not hard to look at our own lives and to be overwhelmed with what we see as impossibilities. Where are we to buy food so that these people can eat? Where are we to get the resources to meet this need? Where are we to go to find help? Where is the question, where? 
any of you are familiar with the beginning of the Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 121, verse 1. Notice what Psalm 121 says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Where is the question of the hour? It's the question of every hour. Where? Where are we to go to have our needs met? Where are we to go to find answers to our questions? Where? Jesus is a better redeemer because his provision is completely sufficient. In just a moment, we're going to share in this communion meal, in the Eucharist, and we're going to give thanks for this meal. What are we giving thanks for? The little cracker and the, you know, smidgen of juice? We're giving thanks, Eucharist, for what they represent. We're giving thanks for the the bread, which represents the very body of Jesus, the human body of Jesus. He took on human flesh. He tabernacled among us. He was incarnated, and that body was killed. It was hung on a cross. It was sacrificed to take the punishment for sin. We give a Eucharist, a thanksgiving to God for the blood, the blood that he shed, the blood that was poured out to make atonement for all who would trust in him. Is this the king you're looking for? He's a better rescuer. He's a far better ruler. And he's a better redeemer for all the impossible situations of our lives. And right now, he offers to you more than you ever imagined. In fact, that leads to my last thought. To a world that is perpetually hungry, Jesus offers complete satisfaction.